Today I have the joy of introducing one of my dear friends, Kevin Pragel. He's going to be preaching for us this morning as we continue our trek through the book of Acts. Uh, Kevin and I have been able to serve together um, through Blue Valley, where he serves as the kids director, and just a, a man of joy and honor, and we're grateful to have you with us this morning, my friend. Awesome. Thank you, Pastor Allen, for that introduction. I was... Uh, exaggerated uh, quite a bit, so I appreciate that. Well, good morning, Overflow. It is good to be with you all here this morning. Uh, as Pastor Allen uh, had mentioned, my name is Kevin Pragel. I serve over at Blue Valley Church in Overland Park uh, as the uh, minister to children. So I cover uh, first through fifth grade. Uh, it is a joy um, to get to serve in that area. They always they keep you young, they keep you on your toes, um, and, and just always, you never know what's going to come out of their mouths next. You, you just never know. Um, I want to introduce, uh, real quick, uh, before I jump into this, my family, my beautiful wife Candace is back there. Uh, we've been married uh, 10 years this past January. Um, I have a two-year-old Heartland who is uh, currently in Overflow Kids, and then I have a four-year-old Levi who you probably heard multiple times throughout the service. Uh, Levi has a unique ability um, to transform into anything. He can be a robot and dinosaur, a lion, whatever uh, his mind um, is set to. But what I've found most amazing about toddlers is they have the unique ability to defy physics and be in what seems like four places at once. Um, just always running around, always doing something. So... I pray that you all are doing well. It is an honor. Thank you, Pastor Allen, for inviting me out here to uh, preach. I, I always uh, consider it an honor to uh, fill in the pulpit and bring God's word. And so if you have your copies of God's word, um, I ask that you please open them to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. And as I understand it, you all have been going through Acts um, recently, uh, just shortly after finishing the book of Luke. Is that right? Excellent. Uh, and I think the whole idea behind these books, which a lot of people consider to be one complete work, right? They consider Luke-Acts to be a complete work that, that Luke put together. But the whole idea behind this is that God is on mission. God is on a mission. And the beautiful truth is that we get to be a part of that. God invites us to be on mission with him. Think about that for a minute. The God of the universe the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who created you and I, the God of the Bible, is completing a mission, and he asks us to be a part of it. That's an amazing, mind-blowing thing when you really, really think about it. So we're going to be in a passage of Acts uh, that I think is a little bit unique. And, and at first glance, you may think that this passage uh, is about giving, uh, giving to one another uh, and giving to the church. But I think that when you dig down deep in it, that's partially true. But this passage, uh, what I hope to communicate to you is that this passage is about community. It's about togetherness. It's about coming together as one. Not just any community, but God-honoring, spirit-led, and sacrificial community. 
And I think if we're honest with ourselves, very few of us have, have actually experienced that type of community in the world. We'll see this in, in Acts chapter 4. So, as I said, uh, please uh, find in your copies Acts chapter 4. What I hope to communicate to you uh, is these three characteristics of what a spirit-led community looks like. But before we jump into this, would you please uh, join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are, we are thankful for your word. Father, we are grateful for the message that we get to hear and proclaim every single day. And as we come before the, the God of the universe, the one who sustains our life, the one who sustains creation, the one who holds all things in his hand, Father, I just ask that you would give me grace. Father, that you would help me to proclaim your word with boldness, with confidence. Father, above anything else, I pray that you would receive the glory. So, Father, as I dive into your word, Father, as I proclaim your truths, I pray that these words would become your words. Father, that you would help me and give me grace in this moment. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so number one, a spirit-led community is characterized I'm sorry, a spirit-led community is characterized by unity. Take a look at verse 32 in Acts chapter 4. It says, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. So we're first introduced to this group of believers, right? Luke just kind of inserts this into verse 32. But we're introduced to this group of believers all the way back at the beginning of the chapter. Or all the way back in Acts chapter 2. This church has been established and God is working through them. This entire group who believed were of one heart and one mind. And what's amazing when, when you think about this, when you jump back to Acts chapter 2, when you jump back to the beginning of chapter 4, is that this group is made up of some really different people. So if you would, uh, Acts chapter 4, I'll only make you go back a few verses. Find verse uh, 4 in your copies of God's word. In verse 4, we're told that as a result of Peter and John's preaching, that 5,000 men were added to the church that day. Think about that for a minute. 5,000 men were added to the church that day. Imagine if God did that here at Overflow. Man, that would be overwhelming, wouldn't it? Right? We'd praise God for it. We'd say, thank you, Lord, for what you were doing. But it would feel a little bit overwhelming. This states this is just 5,000 men. In reality, this may have been closer to 10, maybe 15,000 people, maybe even 20,000 if you count women and children that were added to the church that day. 
And this group in verse 32 is that same group. One could make the argument that the, that the group has grown since the beginning of chapter 4. It's still very, very large, but it's made up of every kind of person from different backgrounds. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, short, tall, fat, skinny, poor, rich, different dialects, different worldviews, different backgrounds and upbringings. To put this in modern day terms, think about this for a second. If, if God were to add 5,000 people to overflow, it would be made up of Midwestern people. It would be made up of Southern people. Johnson County, Cass County, Jackson County, Grandview, Belton, St. John, Black, White, Asian, English, African, and everything that falls in between. But despite their differences, they still found unity. They still, found, they still found love for one another. They were still unified in their mind, in their knowledge, how their faith was lived out. No one was slipping through the cracks. That's what's, that's what's really beautiful about this passage is that you had 5,000 people added to the church today. It's probably grown since then, but no one was getting left out and no one was getting forgotten. It's absolutely beautiful, this picture of community, of what true unity and selflessness looks like. So what's the secret? How do they accomplish this? Is it just try harder? Is it just, hey, we need the right programs? We need uh, the right people in place? Is, it, is there some magic formula? Well, no, there's not. But the Bible does tell us exactly how they were able to get this done. Uh, take a look at verse 31, if you would. Take a look at verse 31 in Acts chapter 4. Right there at the, at the very end. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the secret. That's how this unity has come together. This is how these, these people of different backgrounds and colors and upbringings are able to be unified is they, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Church, true community and true unity, what we see in the Bible starts with God. It always starts with God. And while it's true, sure, non-believers can have community. I don't deny that. Non-believers can have unity. They can have love for one another, sure. But the truest and purest form is found in God and God alone. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were able uh, to have that come out of their hearts and manifest, manifest itself in different ways. But the most obvious way that that was manifested was in their generosity. Look again at verse 32. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Their unity and the filling of the Holy Spirit allowed them to view things differently. They no longer saw their possessions as things that they own. They, never, they no longer uh, looked at the things that God had given them and say, oh, this is mine. This is my stuff. And I get to use it. Right? 
but rather they viewed the things that God had given them as a way and an opportunity to serve the church and love others. There was no mine. There was no my stuff. They, they rather asked the question, how can I use this for the glory of God? How can I use this to serve and love the church? How can I bless others because of what God has given me? They moved from mine to ours. Their concern was not on what do I get out of this and, and, and what's in it for me? But rather their concern was how can I bless others? How can I care for the needs of others? And we'll see this clear uh, in a little bit, but this church was able to do this because of the gospel and because of the way that they viewed Christ. But they saw that their greatest treasure, the greatest thing that they could have, was not things, but their greatest treasure was Jesus. They saw how much God had loved them and that turned into a love for one another. They turned their love and focused outward towards people and not possessions. It's a beautiful picture of, of what we see here early in the book of Acts. Take a look at verses 33 through 35. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them because those who owned land or houses had sold them, brought proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as they had need. So Luke continues in his account and tells us that this great power had come among the apostles and among the church. They gave testimony of the resurrection and there was a great grace among them. What does that mean? Right? We, we think, oh, that's a good thing. We want this great power. We want this great grace. And we want to give testimony to the Lord. What does that really mean? Well, because Luke sandwiches verse 33 in between two verses about giving and generosity, I think it's safe to say that what Luke had in mind was giving. Yeah, it's likely that, that verbal testimony, yeah, they were sharing the gospel. Yeah, they were sharing their testimony about how Jesus changed their heart. The gospel was being proclaimed. But I think what, Luke's, what Luke wants to see us here, wants to see here is something so much more. That we can give testimony about Jesus by our giving. We can give testimony about how God has given us a great grace and has changed our heart through generosity. Have you ever considered the way that you treat others, the way you give of yourselves from your possessions, that you can show others about what Jesus has given you? Have you ever considered that blessing others and being able to show that your true treasure is in heaven is a grace from God? It is quite literally a grace from God. It is a gift from God to be able to bless others and to be able to say, hey, I don't need all this stuff. None of this matters to me because I have Jesus in heaven and that is what I value more than anything else in this world. The early church did this so well that there was not a needy person among them. 
The people were selling what they owned and they were bringing it to the apostles so that it could be spread out among everyone. This example does not need to be put on a pedestal. We don't need to look at this with awe and say, oh, this is so amazing. I wish we could have this right here and right now. This kind of community can be achieved today. It can be achieved right here at Overflow in the Kansas City area. But it begins with God. It begins with loving your neighbor as yourself. It begins with viewing your possessions differently. But also it requires sacrifice. And that leads me to point number two. A spirit-led community is characterized by sacrifice. Luke has spent some time showing us what community looks like and what they did, what the church uh, was able to display as the testimony of Jesus and a great grace. And now he's going to give us a positive example that we'll look at right now. And then uh, here in just a minute, we'll look at the negative example that Luke gives us. So take a look at verses 36 and 37, if you would, in your copies of God's word. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, uh, the one the apostles, apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned. He brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. End scene. Right? End scene. That's it. That's all that we need to know about this. Barnabas doesn't get a lot of screen time in the New Testament, right? We don't know a lot about Barnabas. We, we know about Paul and we know about John and Peter. Barnabas is a really interesting guy that if you have time, you should totally do um, a, di- a deeper dive into. He doesn't get a lot of screen time, but almost every single time he's mentioned in the New Testament, it's in a really positive light, which is super interesting to me. And generally speaking, I would say that if if Barnabas does something, there's a really good chance that that is something that we should be doing. But either way, we're told of this act of generosity from Barnabas. He takes this land that he owned, he sold it, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Simple enough, right? You think, oh, well, that's no big deal. That's easy. Barnabas, you silly goose. That didn't actually require anything from you. But understanding the background of what's going on here will help us to better understand what's going on with Barnabas, but also will help us understand this next section a little bit better. Barnabas selling his field was not just selling a field. It was a principal source of wealth for him. This was a tremendous blessing. Because he was a Levite, he technically wasn't supposed to own land. But for one reason or another, this doesn't necessarily apply to Barnabas. He had a significant source of wealth whose value was only going to increase. Think about that for a second. If you could go back in time and you could jump on stock in Apple, right? Or if you could go back in time when Bitcoin was like a cent for, you know, however much, however much you can get when it was dirt cheap, there's a really good chance almost every single person would jump on that, right? And in modern day terms, if we held on to that now and we'd be looking at it like, oh, this is, this is my baby. This is my precious gift. Look at how much it has gone up. 
The modern day equivalent would be owning stock in a company on a cryptocurrency whose value has gone through the roof. And what he does is he says, I don't need this anymore. This isn't mine. This belongs to the Lord. And he sells it and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And that's it. The way that he does it lets us know everything we need to know about Barnabas. He lays it at the apostles' feet, and that's it. He missed out on the trumpets. He missed out on the parade. He missed out on being touted as a hero. He could have said, hey, guys, look at, look at what I'm giving. Isn't this awesome? Someone pat me on the back. Yeah, Luke writes it down, sure. But he totally missed out on all the recognition and praise that he would have received had he gone about this in a different way. In the example of Barnabas, we see that he sacrificed. The most obvious thing that he sacrificed was property, money, wealth. But he saw his true treasure was in heaven, and he put aside his worldly possessions. But the other thing that Barnabas sacrificed, pride, status, praise, recognition. These are all things that we crave daily, that I crave, crave daily. We like to be recognized. We like to be praised. We like to have high status. And all these things could have benefited him and made him look like a better person, but he cared more about the common good. He cared more about the gift that was given to him than he did any of those other things. Being a part of a church, being a part of a spirit-led community requires sacrifice. And I think for a lot of us in here, myself included, when we're asked to sacrifice, we're generally okay with that. We say, Lord, I'm fine with all this stuff. You want me to sacrifice this? Fine, whatever. But this is my line in the sand. Please, God, don't ask me to go beyond this line. All this stuff is easy. It doesn't require anything. You want me to give that up? Fine. That sin that status, that relationship, okay, I can do that. But Lord, you're asking me to give up my house. You're asking me to give up the nice neighborhood that my family lives in. Lord, you're asking me to give up the, the one thing that I want to hold on to more dearly than anything else. And I think more often than not, that is the thing that God is asking us to give up. So what is God calling you to give up today? What is God calling you to sacrifice? A spirit-led community requires unity. It requires sacrifice. And thirdly, it requires integrity. We are now introduced in Acts chapter 5, the negative example by way of Ananias and Sapphira. Again, this is a, uh, a, two people that do not get a lot of screen time in the New Testament. We'll see why they don't get a lot of screen time. And there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about what they actually did wrong. And then, so I hope to kind of clear this up and show you why integrity is so essential in a spirit-led community. So if you would, uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property 
However, he kept back part of the proceeds uh, with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're not really told where this comes from. We're not really told very much about Ananias and Sapphira. They don't get an origin story like some other people in the New Testament. But it's possible that word got out and they heard about Barnabas. They say, hey, have you heard about Barnabas? Did you hear about the awesome thing that he did? And they're like, oh, we could do that. We could, we could maybe get some praise and recognition or maybe, hey, we've been benefiting from this. We want to look good. We want to show people that we're generous. Let's do that. Let's do what Barnabas did. So they sold a piece of property and they brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, right? It's the exact same wording as what we see with Barnabas. But they kept back some of the money with his wife's knowledge. So were they being criticized because they didn't give, any, or they didn't give everything? Does God get mad when we don't give everything? Do we deserve to be struck down? Because we don't give everything? What was their sin exactly? What was the thing that they did wrong here? Well, let's keep reading. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. In Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? After it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. And rather than being filled with generosity, rather than being filled with the fruit of the Spirit, rather than being filled with the Spirit itself, Satan has filled their heart to lie. They intentionally misrepresented their offering in front of God, in, the, in his presence, and in front of his people. Peter says in verse 4, he says, hey, you didn't have an obligation to give. That was your money. That was your land. You could have done with it whatever you wanted. And hey, I tell you what, if you had brought just a portion of it and said, this is the small portion, and we kept some, some of it back, that would have been fine. You can do with it whatever you want. But they had planned to deceive and lie to the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, this is everything. We're giving you everything. But in reality, it required absolutely nothing of them. They wanted the praise, they wanted recognition, and the benefits of the Spirit-led community without sacrifice, without unity. We must not forget that enjoying the benefits of the church without living out the responsibilities of the church is not something that God calls us to. Almost immediately, Ananias drops dead. He's carried off to be buried. His wife, three hours later, comes in, and Peter gives her an out. He gives her a chance to come clean. He asks her point blank, did you sell the land for this amount? Right? It, as I was reading this in preparation, it kind of like gave me some flashbacks and PTSD to when I got in trouble for my mom growing up. I knew when my mom asked a generic question, when she said, did you do something wrong? I kind of I knew in my mind, I was like, maybe she doesn't know. Maybe I can get away with this. But when she asked, did you break this with your football? I was like, oh man, game over. She knows, right? And Peter asked a very specific question. Did you sell the land for this amount? She could have come clean. She could have said, no, we kept some of it. 
Sapphira sticks with the plan and she says yes and she suffers the same fate as her husband. Their big sin, in my opinion, was a lack of integrity. Wanting to enjoy the benefits of this community, wanting to be a part of the church without it actually requiring anything of them. It was a surface level display of community and generosity on their part. They were not the people they portrayed themselves to be. And this caused them to lie to God. They may have lived in the community, but they were not changed by the community. They may have been surrounded by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit had not actually changed them. And God takes seriously the holiness and integrity of his church. Three times in this section, verses 3 4 and 9, the presence of God is mentioned. And twice, verses 5 and 11, it's mentioned that fear had come into the community. And this is significant because the spirit, uh, with a spirit-led community, there's no room for deception. There's no room for lying, misrepresentation, or hypocrisy in God's church. God cares far too much about his church to allow it become corrupt. And with the church as young as it is here, it was an early opportunity for Satan to infiltrate this community and destroy it from the inside. And this passage is a stern warning to us to regularly check our hearts, to regularly examine if we are really following Christ, if we have really been changed by the Holy Spirit, rather than just being surface-level participants of it. All these characteristics of a spirit-led community are essential unity, sacrifice, and integrity. Why is this important? Well, because all of those things, without all of those things, we cannot fully live on mission with God. Without those things, we become so focused on ourselves that we miss out on an opportunity to serve others with the gospel and to serve others and bless the church. So what can you do today? I want to give you guys three things that I, I want to challenge you to focus on today, this week, whenever. Uh, number one, have an outward focus. Have an outward focus. I think, and this is, I think this is truer than it's ever been in our, in our current culture, climate, our lives. It becomes so easy in the busyness of our daily grind of our lives to put on blinders because we're constantly focused on the next thing that we're doing, the next place that we're going, or the next big event that we have coming up. And while those things aren't necessarily a bad thing, I get it, the busyness can sometimes be a good thing. I think sometimes it can also be a bad thing. And I would encourage you guys to take time to slow down. Slow your life down. Don't focus on what you have coming up. But take a look around the room. Find someone that you see and just pray for them. Someone in this room, maybe a neighbor, someone in your community, pray for them. Have a conversation with them, a deep, meaningful conversation, which those are harder to come by. Right? It's very easy to just do surface level of pleasantries. Great, how you doing? Awesome, great, see you next time. Maybe take a person or, or family that you see to lunch. 
Have an outward focus. It starts with seeing people and taking those small steps towards building that community, especially within the church. Number one, have an outward focus. Number two, keep the main thing the main thing. When I played football in high school, uh, my coach used to tell us uh, almost every single practice, he said, keep the main thing the main thing, which I don't fully know what he meant by that, even to the same, which is probably why I wasn't very good. But he said, keep the main thing the main thing. And I think what he meant was to prioritize the important things. Don't lose focus on the things that deserve our attention. What's most important here is the gospel. They kept the gospel at the center of everything they did. It was the reason for everything that they did. It was the source of everything that they did. And I think that when we really take a look at the gospel and what it says about us apart from Christ, right? Reading Ephesians 2, and if we really are dead in our sins, if we really are children of wrath, if we take that seriously of what the Bible says, and if the Bible's telling the truth, which it is, and we understand how much God loves us and how much he sacrificed for us, everything that he did for us, it becomes so important for us to to remind ourselves of the gospel if we truly want to value others. Because when you stack up against what we have done against God versus what someone has done against you, What we have done against God is so much greater. God has forgiven that debt. He has sent his son for us. Forgiveness of sins. Never stop reminding yourself the gospel. Never stop preaching the gospel to yourself and reminding yourself that you have a God who has lavished a great love on you and forgave a great debt. That will be a source of unity and sacrifice and integrity for you. And then third and finally, check your heart daily. This passage is a stern reminder that being in a community does not mean that you are a part of the community. Say that again, being in the community does not mean that you're a part of the community. We need to daily check our hearts and make sure that we have been changed by the gospel, changed by the Holy Spirit, that we are constantly pursuing and living for Jesus Daily, every day I wake up and I repent of my sins. I ask God to forgive me and I ask God, God, I cannot follow you today without your help. Help me to do that. Check your heart daily against scripture. Make sure the spirit is filling your heart. A spirit-led community is not something that can be manufactured. This is not something where if you come away from this message and you say, oh, we need to try harder than I've failed. This is not a try harder thing. This is not a I need to do better. This only works when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwells us when we believe. Ephesians 1 tells us that. It's not believe in ourselves. It's not believe in others. It's not believe in the church. It's not read your Bible or go to church or give or take my kids to VBS or whatever. It's believe in the good news of Jesus Christ that God himself came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life in perfect obedience, did the thing that we could not on our own, and went to the cross and died in our place. He died a sinful man's death. And he did that because of the love that he has for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day and now sits on, on a throne in heaven. Why did he do that? He did that because of the sin that's in us. 
Again, Ephesians 2, if we take those words seriously, that we are sinful people, that we live in disobedience, whether it's thought, action, word, or inaction, everyone is sin regardless of intention or how quickly we have apologized for it. And sin, because God is perfect, separates us from God. And our response is to repent and turn from that sin and believe in the gospel. If you want to know more about what that means, if you have questions, uh, Pastor Allen will be up here. I will be up here. I invite you guys to come and talk to us. And church, we have an awesome opportunity to serve God and live on mission with him. But it starts with unity, sacrifice, and integrity. And I challenge you to really think about how you can display these things as the Spirit leads you. If you would, please join me in prayer. Father, we are thankful for who you are and what you've done, God. We thank you for the gospel, God, and I pray that that would be at the forefront of our hearts and minds daily. Help us to live out these truths in a way that you have called us to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.